But what, would, what do you make of, uh, I don't know if you've encountered this, when you phone people up these days, you now sometimes get put on hold and you get the same kind of lift music coming down the phone at you? Well, I had this once with uh, Australian Airlines. I phoned up uh, and I said, I want to book an airline ticket to London. So the voice said, hold on, please. And then this went on a long while, and finally she put me through the uh, tickets here. I said, just a minute. <laughs> Yesterday. <laughs> all about the stars of the goon show and the shows themselves now one of the interesting things about doing this podcast is how many memories come flooding back from you know 30 years ago um such as how uh, as an immature teenager i would jokingly refer to the early goon film penny points to paradise as percy points at porcelain uh, for which i squarely lay the blame at the feet of barry humphreys anyway moving on uh, my guest this week is the comedy writer, author, and journalist, David Quantic. Hi, how are you doing? Nice to be here. Uh, just in case some listeners have been living under a rock, I'll just very briefly run through your CV, because uh, you're a man who's been involved over the years with some of my favourite comedy, um, such as On the Hour, uh, and it's TV transfer, the day-to-day, of course, uh, Brass Eye, The Thick of It, and more recently, the, the uh, revival of a childhood favourite in The Shape of Danger Mouse. Oh, yes. Um, uh, you've also worked on the hugely successful TV series Veep, uh, for which I believe you received an Emmy. Oh, yes. Where do you keep that Emmy? On the mantelpiece behind me. Um, some people get put their awards to in the bathroom. I just think that's disgusting. Mm-hmm. You don't keep toilet paper on the mantelpiece why would you put your awards in a toilet <laughs> you've also written quite a number of novels your most recent novel night train now i, I, <clears throat> I must admit i haven't read it okay but i i gather it's a, a sort of a, what, a sci-fi horror with gags is that correct yeah i mean to save time it's essentially got the same plot as the movie snowpiercer which is a bit oh, annoying yeah. and is having causing <laughs> trouble selling the rights but yeah i write novels of different kinds that one's a sci-fi horror novel and some people have said it's also quite funny, which wasn't really the plan. Mm. But no, I recommend it to everyone who hasn't read it. Yeah, I, I, I bought a book called Night Train from a Kindle, but it was pretty hard going and extremely self-indulgent. And it wasn't until... That was, wasn't mine. That was probably Martin Amos's it, Night Train. It, it was Martin Amos's Night Train. <laughs> My basic mission in life is to write books with the same title as Martin Amos' novel so that people will buy mine by accident. Okay, so when's Dead Babies coming out? Ah, it's on the way. <laughs> and what was it like bringing back Danger Mouse? Well, it was a lot of fun. There's a story which I'm sure is partly true that the, the original writer of Danger Mouse went to the first meeting and the first meeting was very much on the sort of American model of like, so what's Penfold's motivation and we need to have a story arc mm. for the Baron. And after about 10 minutes, he said, well, I guess I'll just leave you guys to it. It's a a rebooted Danger Mouse. It's still really good. Mm. Um, but the original Danger Mouse is, and I say this with affection, chaotic, to say the least. I mean, for an animated show, they appear to be improvising it. That said, it really works. It's a great show. But the new Danger Mouse is kind of turbocharged and quite slick. It's also very, very funny. And it was a real pleasure. I was the head writer on that, owing to a clerical error. But no, it's a great show. And if yeah, if you like animation and if you like British comedy, it's a fantastic show. And mm. I recommend it to anybody between the ages of nine and 90. Mm. Well, you play three it? and 90, really. Sorry, eight-year-olds. You'll enjoy it, too. <laughs> uh, any, <clears throat> any, any plans to bring back, I don't know, Count, Count Duckula and Victor and Hugo? Well, Count Duckula does turn up in Danger Mouse from time to time oh, in right. cameo roles. But um, whether the full force 
of the vegetarian doc is available <laughs> to viewers. I can't say. Okay. So, David, um, uh, did you think you would live so long as to see a, a podcast turn up about the Goon Show? Well, I didn't know what a podcast was when I was listening mm. to the Goons, but they have pretty much mapped um, my life in terms of recordings. It's quite nice to reach a point where there is a Goons podcast. It does make a change from the usual podcast, which is, you know, two idiots talking about something they saw online. Mm -hmm. Or, and this is a bit hypocritical of me, heritage rock bands. I get, you know, I spend a lot of my time talking about rock bands of the 60s. So it's nice to talk about some comedy from the 1950s. Yeah, because when I was thinking about starting a podcast, I briefly considered starting one about the Beatles. I thought, well, I'm sure that no one else has done that. And uh, <laughs> three minutes research. Uh, and I decided, OK, I'll try something a little bit more niche, a little bit more um, outre. Um, but I expect there'll be probably a dozen Goon Show podcasts by the end of this year. They spawn so quickly. Um, they do, rather. I mean, I'd have to say there are several great Beatle ones, and one of them called The Egg Pod. Yes. Is very worth listening to. The guests they get on are incredible. And everyone's always got something different to say about, you know, that group of nine or so albums. Absolutely. One of, one of the things I've found, so well, I'm into what, episode 14, 15 of, of this podcast. One of the things that keeps cropping up time after time after time in conversations I'm having is the Beatles. So I'm talking about the goons. And, and it's very difficult to talk about the goons to, to any great degree without, in some respect, the Beatles cropping up in conversation, be it George Martin or, you know, uh, Sellers appearing with Ringo in The Magic Christian or whatever it may be. So, you know, th th there is that link, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it's very different to America. I'm currently reading, bizarrely, Louis Barth's Morecambe and Wise book, mm. which is great. Yeah. And in the space of two pages, he mentions... Um, the Goon Show, mentioning Walkham and Wise, and of course the Beatles, and you know the connections between. It's a bit weird. It's like if Elvis Presley or Chuck Berry had been on a comedy label in America, and had a producer. Their producer was Stan Freeberg, you know, the <laughs> comedy. But that's the links between the Goons. I mean, I love that. I absolutely love that about the Beatles that they love the Goons because the Goons were huge. You know, so they weren't, Lennon wasn't into a little cult comedian who nobody had heard of to show off. He was into the most popular radio show of its day, which made it the most popular transmitted thing of its day. Yes. Yeah. I was watching, re-watching. I wasn't a big fan of the Ron Howard film, Eight Days a Week, particularly. But mm. it's, it's just turned up on Britbox. And I was re-watching it the other night with half an eye, you know. And I noticed there was a, a, a clip of... Um, well, there was obviously a sequence where they were they mentioned George Martin working with Sellers and the Goons in the fifties, and the photo they, they stuck up to illustrate the Goons was the Telly Goons, hmm. and and I was and I was thinking, okay, that's one of the researchers or Ron Howard himself, who I presume's got final sort of decision on these things, assuming that the Telly Goons and the Goon Show were one and the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I gather, David, I don't want to, you know get personal here but you you were born not not too long after the goon show proper ended so yeah you... i was born in 1961 so um i definitely missed it at the time so you'd have also been too young for the tally goons but what what was your sort of how did you come to the goons what's your sort of earliest memory of the goon show well, or the goons? it's hard because you mentioned the tally goons and while the tally goons didn't last that long and i have no memory of it um it was in kids comics Mm -hmm. And I think it may be a false memory, but I don't know how else I know. I'm pretty sure those the kids' comics versions, maybe it was reprints, continued into the mid-60s. Because um, I definitely remember being baffled by it. I remember seeing the puppets, whether it was at the time or not, I don't know. But my actual memory is really simple. I know your viewers don't have visuals, but yeah, there's two albums, three albums I'm holding in my hand right oh, yes. now. Yeah. This is what they sound like. Um, the Best of the Goon Shows, number one, and The Best of the Goon Shows, um, not in that order. My parents had a couple of neighbours called Pam and Tony, who are lovely people, family friends, who sold or gave us their dance set in about, <laughs> I don't know, 1967, let's say. And yeah. the dance set came with a little rack 
and in it were seven little girls kissing and hugging with Fred, um, Incy Wincy Teensy Weensy Yellow Polka Dot Bikini, a um, couple more singles, a Val Dunican album, and a couple of others, and the best of the goons, and the best of the goons number two. And that was our instant record collection. Entry in prison diary, February the 2nd, at sea. <laughs> the coast of France visible through the bars of F block. Uh, good morning, uh, Captain Seagull. Good morning. Wait a minute. You are not one of my convicts. No, 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 I must stow away. Well, you'll have to get off. You'll have to get off. Stop the prison! On your left hand, down. Stand up, John. Stop! Look, look, look. Don't stop it just for me. I'm not complaining, old man. I That's mean, I... not the point. That's not the yeah, point. I know, sir. but I mean, I'm we not. We are full up. Look here, we are full up. We've uh, a maximum complement of convicts. 2,183. What, 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 what? 2,182, if you don't mind. One was drowned this morning. Drowned? How? Poor lad, he tried to tunnel his way out. <laughs> Very well, you can have his cell. That'll be three shillings, please. There you are. Three shillings in kosher margarine. Good. I'll spread it on my checkbook at once. It's very interesting that Pam and Tony's tastes were obviously a bit like mine in that there were sort of novelty pop singles mm. and a comedy album and Val Dunican. And, yeah, I came to the Goons albums and my dad had liked the Goons. My dad loved radio comedy. He, was a, he grew up during the war, but he loved the Goons and we did the catchphrases and everything. So, but when I heard these records, I became a bit obsessed I didn't know much about comedy, you know, because I was literally a child. Mm. And you can, I can sort of gauge the earliness of my obsession because for Christmas one year, I got 1972's The Best, The Goon Show Scripts. Oh, yes. And my copy is a first edition worth millions. Apparently it cost £1.90, mm -hmm. according to the pencil-written price in it. And then I got volume two. Mm. Um and of course, people always say this, but this was the way you consumed things then. There were very few repeats. You couldn't buy cassettes or CDs and so on. So the comedy album was very important. It was the only way to hear your favourite comedy, whether re-recorded or not, yeah. or get the script books. And I'd never seen a script book. I don't think I understood what a script was. But me and a boy called Andrew Whitby at my school, he had, we, had tape record, we would record the sketches, the, the episodes ourselves. We do the voices. Um, I don't know if Andrew was particularly a fan of the goons or not, but we enjoyed doing the recordings. So before I was aware of Monty Python, who I've always considered Johnny Come Lately's, um, <laughs> I was a goons obsessive. And because of those two albums, because of buying that damn set. And of course, in the 70s, it fed into, you know, my teenage comedy interest is not much of a leap from the goons to the goodies. Mm. and yeah python as well i got the connection although i really did think at the time they were a bit lumbery compared to the goons i noticed you you've previously described python as milligan for students yeah and i think that's unfair but true um <laughs> much more yeah because i mean i'll talk about that in a bit maybe but the difference between python and i've got to say monty python are brilliant they were a great team. They made some absolutely brilliant stuff. But Spike Milligan was a genius. You know, he's one of the few, bona, well, one of the many bona fide geniuses of comedy. And if some of it was rubbish, that's what you get with a genius. And, you know, Python doesn't have that spark for me. Mm. It just doesn't. And the fascinating, I loved the race, like the arms race between Milligan's Q shows and the students. The Footlights lot doing their shows, yeah. and Milligan wins. You know, there's, there's a famous story of I think Jones phoning up Terry Jones phoning up Michael Palin, and they've seen the first series of Q, whatever it was, and going, "Oh my God, he's done it!" Mm -hmm. You know, because he did, Milligan did it just like that. It's like sketches; they don't need to end. Yeah, he completely he cut the knot. So they were all. He was always ahead of Python, and sometimes, yeah, later Q series are hard going and so on. But there we go. A lot of Monty Python is impossible for humans to watch. Mm -hmm. Oh, it is. But uh, Milligan, the thing about Milligan, and I've always thought this, I've said this before, he's the kind of 
character that you would expect him to have taken again, Monty Python. You, you'd expect him to have been a bit, maybe had his nose put out of joint a little bit by Python, but he, he, he didn't seem resentful in any way, which you'd expect someone like Milligan, you know, he would be like that. Oh, he could go either way. I once saw one of those shows where it was sort of an afternoon show where kids and school kids asked questions of famous people and Spike was on. I called him Spike, though, I don't know him. And I just remember an awkward moment where there were two very middle-class teenage boys, obviously off to college in about a week. You know, nice kids, quite posh. And they asked Milligan a question and he was not rude, but he was a bit, uh, if you want to get into comedy, do this. And then a little girl asked him a question and he was just absolutely face shining with yeah. joy. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, sometimes I think he might've wearied. And there are so many stories. I worked on a TV show called Saturday Zoo and you know, there's so many stories. There's the person going up to Spike Milligan and him going, yes, it is. <laughs> and um yeah, one of the people I worked with, a comedian called Mark Thomas, brought in all his Milligan stuff. Should have known better, really. You know, get went into the whole thing about how he loves Spike and um, asked him to sign his books. And Spike Milligan said no. Oh. You know, so yeah. mm. there's a book by um, a writer called Sylvia Patterson called I'm Not With The Band. And she goes to interview Spike in Rye. And it's great. And the best bit is that she misses her her ride home so she stays the night and he is just wonderful you know they drink a lot of red wine she sleeps in the so on the sofa in the spare room has an absolutely marvelous time mm. um do you think though if you'd been born so you you've touched on the goodies if you'd been born maybe what five years earlier you'd have been the perfect age for flying circus but because of when you were born you were the perfect age for the goodies in 1970 do you think? Oh, absolutely. I mean, but you make your own way as well. And because of my age, you know, me and my friends, we liked Python, but it was, you know, the older kids would come into class and they'd be like, I wish to register a complaint. And we would like, oh, <laughs> it was like, the, you know, it was the same as their music. We liked punk, you know, to narrow it down. We liked punk. They liked Pink Floyd. We liked the goodies. And we would be the ones who went on to like the young ones and alternative comedy. Um, they liked Python and they liked Pink Floyd. I mean, I also, you know, because I was like millions of comedy writers, bookish. So the goons, you know, and I liked Alice in Wonderland. That's mm. one of my favourite books. And I would buy things like the Penguin, Penguin Book of Nonsense, edited by Paul Jennings, which is a classic. And that's got Python in it and Alice in Wonderland, and it's got Milligan and the goons in it. But it's also got people like N.F. Simpson, who's one of my favourite, who's oh, a playwright. Yes. Who was much, much loved by the Pythons and was kind of like Spike Milligan of the West End is a very bad description. Brilliant, mm. brilliant writer, huge influence on the Pythons who and beyond the fringe. Jonathan Miller directed his stuff. Mm. Simpson's, N.F. Simpson Wally's, is one of the funniest writers in the world um, and very Milligan-esque really worth reading or seeing some of his stuff. You could easily believe that it was kind of slightly more upmarket goons. Natural History Museum every weekend and the zoo and a half day. I'm not surprised she gets hold of all these idiotic ideas. You don't have to keep on at her all the time, Mabel. I notice you soon had something to say when you thought you might have to dip into your pocket for her new glands. And it won't last five minutes when she gets them. Same with that other craze, when she wanted to be a pterodactyl. How long did that last? She might have made a go with that pterodactyl Mabel if she hadn't kept on at her. You started listening to the Goon LPs. Obviously, they didn't have music. The music had been taken out. No, so that was what, a shock. So when did you, can you remember when you first heard, you know, a full-length Goon show with the, with the musical bits included? Yeah, that would be whenever, when the BBC actually repeated them. Mm. And even then, as I joined the Goon Show Preservation Society in about 1976, oh, yeah. I was aware of the, oh, the BBC never repeat anything. And every book you bought by Spike Milligan, the intro would go, oh, I never get any money off the BBC. So I was quite aware that the Goon Shows were hardly ever repeated or appeared to be. It was a bit of a shock when I first heard the shows because it brought them into the real world. Before mm. that, it was a completely surreal world. And if you didn't get the jokes about Lady Docker or Harold Macmillan, it didn't matter. <laughs> yeah. Because you didn't get half the jokes anyway. 
it was mad. You know, the genius of the show was the ideas. It didn't matter if you didn't get a reference. But yeah, it really dated the shows. When you start hearing them with, you know, with Ray Ellington and Max Geldray, you're like, oh my God, these are old. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they were old because, you know, yeah, the shows I was listening to were only 15 years old in real terms. But it's that thing of being the other side of rock and roll. You know, it's the rock and roll is like the Berlin Wall in culture and, and the goons were from <clears throat> the other side of it. So yeah, I've, I still don't get on with the music. I still have no interest in the music. Right. You know, I right. have to be honest about that. All due respect to the huge talents involved, but I always skip those bits. Yeah, I used to, and I'm starting to do that less so now. But so, so in 76, so you joined the Goon Show Preservation Society, but presumably you're um, uh, all about the punk scene by then as well. Well, a little later than that, but I just liked what I liked. I mean, I started getting into the Beatles around that time. You know, I have a friend from school who still mocks me for being a Beatles fan during punk. Yeah. Um, but you like what you like. And there were, you know, there aren't people going around with cattle prods. And to me, the goon, I think the thing is you make your own cool. And to me, the goons were cool and still are. And it was kind of nice to be a snob and go, like, oh, yeah, Monty Python, yeah, whatever. Not mm-hmm. bad, but if you heard the goons. And, you know, I think once I actually got a kid at school to say, I heard the goon show the other night, that program you like, it was really funny and it was weird. And that was like, yes, result. <laughs> well, you see, I got into the goons when I was 14. And it was this is the late 80s. Uh, cool. and I was growing up in a little small town in the back of beyond down under. I felt almost embarrassed. I, I'm ashamed to say I felt embarrassed to mention to my friends that I was into this, this radio show that was by that point, you know, nearly 40 years old. Yeah. Um, and so with friends, I would kind of talk about the goons by stealth. So I would get friends around and hire, you know, the Pink Panther. And I would, you know, do you like that? You know, my friends would be laughing at Sellers films. I mean, do you like this? You might like, you know, you might like this. And mm. I'd play them a little bit of a goon show. A, mm. a, a very carefully selected little sort of two minute sequence from the goon show. Uh, but none of them, none of them. They'd never laughed at anything in their lives, you know. Um, but it was around that time, it was 89, that uh, TVNZ repeated uh, Flying Circus. And I willed myself to love it, if that makes sense. I wanted so much to love Monty Python's Flying Circus. And I, and I, and I kind of did, but I never, my heart was never fully with them, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, I, I can totally relate to that. It's like I don't own anything Python. I own things that mean something to me, like the Ruttles stuff. I mean, mm. you know, duh, yes. the Beatles and pipe comedy together. I own the Ruttles stuff. I love that. I'll, but yeah, and I love Faulty Towers. I've worked with John Cleese. That was fun. Mm. Um, he was very, <laughs> it was a contract. He was, this is just name drops, but he was really nice. We were working on some dreadful showbiz variety show tribute to Prince Charles or something. Um, and afterwards he was great uh, there was some royal there and he he, he basically we did, it didn't happen but he made us hang around so that we could be introduced to the various royal people um, which we weren't it didn't happen but he was really nice and, you know really made the effort and treated us well mm-hmm. Spike Milligan was on a show I did called Saturday Zoo and um, yeah who I mentioned with Mark Thomas and he was not so impressive apart from being really rude to Mark he, hung, he was in the green room watching the show go out during his bit and it was just horrible i remember there was a scene things are direction in your mind there were two people dressed as rabbits on screen and okay. one of them was a white rabbit one of them was a brown rabbit and i still remember spike milligan saying in a loud voice to a room which contained me and the parents of one of the comedians kevin day oh i suppose they have to have a brown one for equality <laughs> oh god you're my hero you know you are the greatest. It's always depressing when people that just say ordinary things like that. But people presuppose that you share their opinions. Yeah, like yeah. taxi drivers. Mm. I mean, I'm presupposing that, you know, he should share my opinions, which is fair enough. But it's like you're wait. You're probably I'm probably waiting for, you know, some 
absolute genius joke. And to hear a sort of generic cab driver style comment was, mm. and also it was that classic, now, now that I'm old, I've realized, and as a music fan as well as comedy, I've realized that people go through troughs or, you know, people, are, people don't change, but they're perceived differently. And at this point, the early 90s, Spike Milligan was not washed. He was somebody who'd been irrelevant for a long time. And he was coming back into relevance. He just started writing his parody books, which I've never read. But, you know, he was yeah. being appreciated as a legend of comedy, as opposed to being a bloke who wouldn't go away. So it was exciting to me to be. It's always annoying. You know, you meet your heroes, but at the wrong time. Yeah, if I'd I, met him in the 70s or the 60s, I would have exploded. But being in the same room as him in the early 90s, it was like, oh, it's nice. Yeah, it's weird because it's almost like there's recordings of him turning up on all sorts of shows in the late 80s, like Through the Keyhole, You Bet, programs like that. And, you know, it's, it's kind of more or less Spike as you've always known him. And then he just, he, it's almost like he kind of ages overnight mm -hmm. and becomes an old man. And... I was living in Belfast in, in 1991 for various reasons. And um, he was on the Jonathan Ross show. And he was quite, there was a lot of, it was the Goons 40th anniversary that year. And I think there was a lot of interest in the Goons and Spike and whatnot. Um, and he may have won an award or something, but he, he was, he was interviewed on Jonathan Ross's show. And I think it's that show where he was quite scathing about comedy in general. And he, and he was very um, scathing about like Vic and Bob. Ooh. And I was just sitting there thinking, oh, don't do this. Because you're not, you, someone like Barry Cryer would never yeah. do that. You know what I mean? Never. Well, it, Barry's, Barry's brilliant because Barry realized that you have to change with the times, and Barry was happy to, and he wasn't mm. scared of it. And the reason that Barry Cryer is loved by an entire, every new generation is because he turns up and says, I love your comedy. Yes. He doesn't do that scared old man thing. You know, mm. which loads of people have just like saying, well, this is crap, isn't it? Mate, it's not crap. They just like this person and they don't like you. Mm. If you want to be liked, <laughs> say that you pretend that you like it. Not that Barry is pretending. But yeah, it was, you make a very good point. Mm. So when did you start? When did you decide that you wanted to get into writing? Well, the first stuff, are, there are two things that made me write. One was my mum was a secretary in a teacher training college and she got a new typewriter. So she gave me her old typewriter. Um, and yeah, that changed everything because I was getting goodies annuals and mm. maybe the Python ones and looking at the Goon Show scripts and seeing things were typed. You could make things look real if you typed them. Yeah. You know, it looked like a real letter or a real document because mm. rather than my handwriting. So I noticed this and I had, I could write, you know, really easily and it looked great. So I started writing stuff and there was a school magazine at my school, obviously, where else would it be? And I started writing articles and I can't remember what they were, but they were just Spike Milligan ripoffs. Mm -hmm. And I remember reading one to my mum and her visibly backing away from me in the kitchen because I was laughing hysterically. <laughs> I wasn't laughing because what I'd written was funny. I think I was laughing because I'd done it and I couldn't believe you could do this. And it was something about the Bay City Rollers, and I think they were changing size in it. It was quite Milligan-esque. Right, you know, yeah. Giant, woody from the base. Um, but it was just that moment which lots of people get when you realise you can do something, not that you can do it well or not. So again, directly, my mum's typewriter and the goons. Mm. And after that, I just didn't stop. And I've always gone back to surrealism. You know, I would always rather watch a show you mentioned Vic and Bob, that kind of comedy. Eddie Izzard does that mm. very well, mm. rather than something rooted in reality. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I remember writing these Goon Show pastiches, I suppose, or, or scripts inspired, well, Goon Shows, basically, which were terminally unfunny, I'm sure, <laughs> thinking back. But at the time, I just thought they were the funniest thing. I remember writing a script featuring the goons and it was like the it was like almost like the bed sitting room scenario that there'd been mm. like a, a, the, a nuclear war and the only survivors were the goon show characters wow i love that moriarty was even more wretched than he'd been you know before sometimes i think about goon show jokes the way that spike milligan writes jokes 
I always get them wrong. I mean, there's the famous one of watches being right time and right once a day. There's one about giving somebody a photograph instead of money mm. and receiving, you know, here's a photograph of five pound note and receiving as change a photograph of a 10 shilling note. Yeah. And I can't do that. I don't know how you make your brain, you turn your brain round to think of things like that. And that's why I think Spike Milligan's a genius and other people are just talented because he just sees the structure of the world, the building blocks of thought differently to mm. other people. So, you know, I'm always trying to be that good. It's great because I'm never going to be like that, but it gives you something to aim towards. I mean, the only rule of comedy is making people laugh, but then you've got meta comedy, which is basically not about making people laugh, but making people think that was a good joke. Mm. So, you know, you can have comedy about comedy. Um, What's interesting about the Q shows and the way they disrupted structure was that he made it funny. You know, he's like, oh, I found a way to deconstruct comedy and to step outside the box by just going, what are we going to do now? But it was funny. Mm. It wasn't like, oh, well done. You you know, in Python, which is brilliant, they found a way, you know, using animation to move from sketch to sketch. But the actual process of leaving the sketch wasn't funny, whereas Milligan made it funny. And... Yeah, so there are there are no rules. You know, my only rule about comedy is you do it with the understanding that people may not laugh or they may attack you. But you can do anything in comedy, same as you can in music or any other format. Obviously, you you, you know very strong connection with Milligan because because you know, you're a writer. Did you did you get into Sellers or Bentine or even Seekham in any particular fashion? Oh, God. Well, like anybody does with the Beatles, you know, when you find out that Ringo Starr was in the Beatles, you go and listen <laughs> to Ringo Starr records with the big, with the good. I mean, yeah, I was fascinated by Harry Seacombe because he was so straight, obviously brilliant, really funny. But he was just kind of the easy way into the goons. You know, he made raspberry noises mm. and sang. He was the light entertainment way in. So he's mm -hmm. kind of the Ringo, really. Um but yeah, I mean, Peter Sellers was on all the time. I must have seen the pink, you know, I'd have seen the Pink Panda movies, even the old ones, all the British comedies with him in. He was obviously a comic genius and you could grow with Peter Sellers. So, you know, you'd watch the Pink Panda and the Ealing type comedies. And then you'd watch something like Being There, which is astonishing. You know, mm -hmm. Being There is still an absolutely great movie. Mm -hmm. And you'd see Strange Love and stuff like that. So... That was rather entertaining that you could follow that aspect of post-goons comedy. Michael Benteen, um, well, Potty Time, I was the right age for that. I would like to see Potty Time again. He's always a bit of a rich confection when he's in the goons, and it's not really his fault because he's you know what the goons is going to turn into, and he's there at the start. In the goons, he's kind of like in a band. He's the bloke playing a saxophone, and you're like, we don't really need a saxophone. <laughs> and he's tooting away, and it's like, oh, get it off him. Yeah. He's too zany. It's like, all right, you've got the beard and the voice, and you're always on. You know, that's the thing. It's like, you know, Milligan and Seacombe um, knew when to dial it down. Mm. Have you seen Down Among the Z-Men, the film? Yes. Um I find those things depressing <laughs> yeah. because you want it to be like, what you want is a film of the goons. You know, you want it exactly as funny. I vaguely remember seeing the running, jumping and standing still film. They're mm -hmm. in there, aren't they? Uh, so yeah, uh, Milligan and Sellers and, and their friends, the Graham Stark, David Lodge. Have you uh, seen, have you seen the Muckanese battle horn? I think I have been in the same room when it was on. <laughs> Right. That is like, I keep doing music, but that is like listening to a Beatles demo before they wrote all their own songs. London. Yes, London. Who can fail to recognize the city's great landmarks? Here in Trafalgar Square, for instance, there is Nelson's Column. And even in the worst fog, you cannot miss Nelson's Column. You see? There's someone not missing it now. There are moments in everything. I was watching some, some BFI reissue 
of a film where everybody goes to London. It might be a short. And I was really happy because Milligan or Sellers is in it and they do the famous gag, which is like, they're in a pub and somebody goes, oh, I've got all these chores to do. And somebody says, what chores? He goes, oh, mine's a pint. And I was like, oh, it's nice to see that joke. I remember hearing it on the radio Mm. or on a Goon's record. But yeah, the the bitty stuff, the pre-Goon, I like the Goon's, you know, and pre-Goon's is kind of harder for me. I sort of drifted away from the Goon's. I'll probably after this go back and listen to stuff. But I think with the Goon's, there's always a fear because quite often you meet people who are funny and they'll go, oh, it's so dated. And sometimes you're a bit scared to go back in in case Mm. you don't like it anymore. But I mean, I don't think I feel that way. Um, But I think I would, yeah, I do need to go back, but I haven't of late. I can quote the odd joke, um, Henry and Min, this skull is 20,000 years old and they sing happy birthday to it. But the funniest thing about that is the beat before they start singing, which is a real kind of wait for it, here it comes. Yeah. You know, every goon character has got a great moment. Everyone's got a classic line or a brilliant scene. Yeah. The, the way that Milligan and to some extent his co-writers from on occasion, Larry Stevens and Eric Sykes mention them, the way that Milligan puts together these characters that every week, you know, there'll be a scenario which is often topical or semi-topical. It's like, right, we're going to have Neddy with Eccles, Eccles with Blue Bottle, Blood Knot's going to be in it, Moriarty and Grip Pipe Thin, Henry and Men, a few others. But the way that he threads them through the show mm-hmm. is beautifully done, you know, because it's all, it's, it's surreal and insane in plotting, but it is character comedy. When you get a scene where, Neddy meets Eccles. You kind of know how it's going to go, but you'll still be surprised and shocked. Well, I mean, there's, there's a there's a kind of a structure, even though Milligan threw structure out the window. There's kind of a uh, what would you call it? An unofficial structure to the Goon shows where you'd have the three acts. You know, if the so you'd have Mac, you'd have the first act, then Geldre, second act, then Ellington, then the final act. And the first act would very often be setting up the you know the, the story and it would obviously be revolving around Neddy Seagoon and he's going to be the patsy he's going to be the fall guy he's going to be you know whatever it is you know it's going to come down on him and the first act very often he will be visited by grip pipe thin and moriarty because they will be the, the the agents of his doom you know um second act invariably it will be Henry and Minnie because Seagoon uh, has to visit them because Crun is an inventor or he's got something or he's he, he, he's got something that will assist Neddy in whatever task it is. And then the third act will invariably be Eccles and Blue Bottle where they get their own little scene, two or three minute routine where they can, you know, uh, talk about dolly mixtures or whatever and Blue Bottle gets killed. <laughs> that's a great analysis. I'd never thought of it that way, but that's... And obviously there's a relationship, you know, there are practical things like who's playing the characters, which is why you tend not to get blood knock and blue bottle scenes, for example. But there's also, thinking about it, there's also kind of a nice, uh, not pessimism, but fatalism that, you know, nobody profits in the end, apart from maybe grip pipe, apart from the worst people. (laughs) You know, it generally ends with blue bottle dead, with Neddy in prison, um, with and you know then maybe somebody marrying a beautiful woman who doesn't deserve it mm. peter sellers absolutely terrifying impression of a beautiful woman yeah cynthia cynthia is that her name mm. incredible voice cynthia yes darling marry me cynthia darling i'd love to I think on one or two occasions, people have had to play other characters when someone's been indisposed. Yes. Yeah, there's there's an episode from Series 7 where Spike is ill and uh, Sellers plays his parts as well as you know, Sellers' own parts. And it's a, you know, it's a tour de force and it's a massively impressive undertaking. But, yeah, you, you, you know, if you came to it cold without knowing that Spike wasn't there, you'd, you'd realise pretty quickly that, it's someone else doing mini. It's someone else yeah. doing doing Moriarty, you know. Um, 
But you mentioned before about Spike being quite topical in some of the shows. So while I've been doing this, this podcast, as well as, you know, talking about the goons in general with guests and individual, you know, specific goon show episodes. And one of the things that I picked up on, because uh, when you, when, you know, when you look at it, it, when you do a bit of research, you know, you listen to a goon show and then you do a bit of research as to, you know, when it went out, what was happening in the world, when that episode went out, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I recently covered the series nine episode of the goons called Queen Anne's Reign. Oh, yeah. Okay, and that went out uh, in, oh God, 59, sometime in 59. And the night that that was broadcast was uh, the same night that the first episode of Quater Mass and the Pit went out on BBC Mm. television. Okay, so that was, you know, that was interesting. Uh, But then six weeks later, six goon shows later, there's the goon show episode called The Scarlet Capsule. February second, nineteen fifty nine. It's on my album. Oh Europe. yeah, there I you knew, go. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, there you go. Uh, so uh, yeah, again, as I always say, torn from the headlines. Milligan's six obviously... weeks is impressed. That'd be. I mean, you couldn't radio four schedules now. You'd be bloody lucky to get that on in six weeks. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so the Goon shows are packed with topical references, and very often, and one of the greatest joys, in a way, like you mentioned, Lady Docker, is hearing a reference which is completely incomprehensible now. Yeah. Um, I only know who she is because I would, you know, the, the script books explained who she was. Mm, mm. Well, these days you can find it. I say these days you can find out on the internet, everything, but even doing this, there was a reference in one of the goon shows. Someone mentions Diana Dawes and a wrestler. <laughs> okay. Right. And, and I could not, find i looked and looked i'm sure that you know um dinodors probably attended many parties where wrestlers were present or perhaps you know hosted many parties where wrestlers were present but god knows yeah there was obviously something at the you know in the week that that goon show was recorded there was something there was some gossip about dinodors and a wrestler it could just have been showbiz story like you know rod stewart and the sailors um, I mean, one of my proudest moments achieving me is that the goons always mention Sabrina. And my dad was a big fan of Sabrina. You know, she was a very busty oh, yeah. model. Mm. And she was in a show with Arthur Askey where she played the daughter of my dad would go. And she never spoke, which he thought was hilarious. And he loved. And years ago, I lived in London and, and I was being taken home by a tab driver. Of course, you know, he lives in your street. It was Sabrina. And I'm like, I was so excited by this that. <laughs> It was also a street where the craze killed somebody. And Alan Davis lived for a while. So it was quite an odd street oh, right. in Stoke Newington in London. But the fact that Sabrina mm. lived there made me very happy. You didn't uh, stand outside her house <laughs> in the evenings hoping to catch a glimpse. No, I looked her up. Sabrina did very well for herself. She married a very wealthy American and ended up in Las Vegas. Retired, I believe. Yeah, she was always being mentioned in the goons. And it was always some... It would always tended to be Blue Bottle who had a bit of a thing for, Sab- <laughs> for Sabrina. <laughs> I think he was impressed with her buxomness. Yes. I will be a hero. My picture will be in the East Finchley Chronics. <laughs> Boy hero Blue Bottles saves train from crashing. <laughs> yeah, that will make that Muriel Bates run after me. I will play hard to get. <laughs> I'm sorry, Miss Bay. <laughs> Shall I tell you that I am a busy boy hero? I have certain matters to attend to. <laughs> Do you know that I have to be photographed with Sabrina? <laughs> Yes, that is what I say, yeah. Here, thinks. That Sabrina's a nice big... Blue bottle! Stop those thinks! Well, this was the era of the sweater girl. Um, I was always impressed again. My mum famously once lost her job <clears throat> because the boss's wife accused her of being a sweater girl. <laughs> right. If you ever met my mum, you, you would find somewhat ludicrous as she is a woman of virtue. Mm-hmm. I'm sure she is. Not a sweater girl. (laughs) 
is there is there any sort of comedy in recent years which in your opinion you know wears its debt to the goons heavily on its on its sleeve i would go with the thing that all the best comedy is a descendant of the goons um because you know a lot of time has passed was it now 60 years something like that and i think the goons are modern surrealism anyone who's watched little britain or Vic and Bob, or you know, Flight of the Concords, even the Modern Descent, any surreal comedy that you watch that is vaguely British in origin um, may have descended from the Pythons, but really descends from the Goons. And the Goons are whatever a watershed is, because there is a long history of surreal comedy in Britain, going back, you know, hundreds of years. Yes. And when you listen to the shows that precede the Goons, like Itma, famously, and Will Hay, and particularly the Crazy Gang, who are American influenced. Mm. You hear that, but the goons, just as you know, we mentioned them again, the Beatles and Elvis Presley came out of a big seismic shift in culture, you know, a different world. The goons has been noted. They came from that army thing. They came from not respect, literally not respecting real authority. That famous story of Peter Sellers dressing up as an officer so he could go to the officer's mess, literally risking his life mm. because he didn't care, you know, because these people were a joke to him, because he had no respect for his so-called betters. You know, Spike Milligan's humour and probably the depression as well. The irreverence of all that, the literally not giving a toss, that was new, I think. Well, you know the story of how Peter Sellers got his first job on the radio? Do tell. So, again, it was very much, you know, similar to dressing up as an officer. He, he manages to get the phone number of BBC radio producer Roy Spear. He gets Roy's number, rings him up, and does an impersonation of uh, Kenneth Horne. And pretends that he says, hello, uh, hello, Roy, uh, Kenneth Horne here. And Roy says, oh, hello, hello, Ken, how are you? And he says, uh, I'm good, I'm good. Uh, uh, just, just thought I'd mention, I saw a, a wonderful young comic um, at, the, you know, at the Variety Theatre the other night, um, Peter Sellers. I think you should have him on your, yeah, one of your radio shows. <laughs> and Roy said, oh, great. Oh, thanks thanks for that. Thanks for the tip. And then Sellers basically sort of can't sustain it anymore. And he says, uh, it, it, uh, actually, um, I am Peter Sellers. And uh, I think Roy Spear swears or something and calls him a cheeky young sod. Um, and he agrees to meet him and he gets put on the radio and, you know, the rest, he, he, he's never not working after that point. Fantastic. Mm. So again, just that sort of chutzpah that he had. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, real anarchy. And, you know, with all due respect, etc., to Python, they didn't have what you'd call a gravel-strewn route to success. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, I'm not a big fan of people who go, oh, School of Hard Knocks, I really work for it. But, you know, the the goons, came, I think coming out of a war, you're like, don't care, really. Not actually scared of posh people at the BBC because people drop bombs on me, you know, mm. for several years. Mm. It's a bit different to getting booed off stage at Jonglers. Mm. Do, you, do you think if, if the goons had never... You know, if they'd never existed, how different might comedy be today? Very hard to say. Um, I think it would have got to a similar point, but it would be different. I don't know how, but I think the license to be insane would be a bit more muted. There's always been a there's always been a fight in this country between, for example, university comedy and popular comedy. There's always been a fight between polite comedy and anarchic comedy. And I think without the goons, things would have been slanted more to those two awful things. Mm, mm. You know, we might still be living in a world of the Cambridge, the Cambridge smoking concert or Terry and June style sitcoms. The mm. idea now that the goons was the most popular show in Britain and it was essentially about destruction and chaos is mm. incredibly inspiring. Mm. Mm. I mean, one thing I would say is that just as with the Beatles, you've got 
four personalities making up something greater than the whole with the goons i love the fact that you've got a family entertainer harry seacombe to make things accessible mm-hmm. to people who don't necessarily like comedy you've got the extreme of spike milligan a man you know genuinely anarchic who doesn't eat who doesn't know himself what he's going to say next or if he's going to be in a good mood or not and next to them you've got probably the greatest technician of comedy that there was you know peter sellers a man who could do anything with a voice yes you know who he brought you know seacom brought friendliness and warmth what sellers brought was realism you know you were in the room with those characters all milligan's characters are great but they are essentially the same character somebody going yeah yes. <laughs> but sellers you know he brought re- you know it's like there's a reason he there's a reason that you go from major blood knock to the raf bloke in strange love mm, mm. Yeah. sellers gave it the illusion there you go he gave it the illusion of authority that's a good yeah he um because I used to, because he was always, obviously he was known in the 50s as a voices man. Throughout his career, he was known for doing the voices. But then I've been re-watching a lot of Sellers films recently. And it, it, I've not really appreciated it until now how how marvellous an actor he actually was. A comic actor he actually was. Yeah. And how this just the, he, he, he all, all his characters or most of his characters on screen they've got this kind of um, repressed nervousness a lot of the time. It's almost like, you know, there's like a, a, a duck. You can see it you know, looking placid above water, but underneath it's, you know, paddling fiercely. It's like Sellers is, is almost, his characters are almost looking like they're about to break into a panic and the eyes are darting around the room, you know. Um, well, and the one for me, you're talking about characters where he's, like a duck, but also the nervousness. The one for me is the guy in The Naked Truth. Yes, Sonny McGregor. So, I mean, that is one of my all-time favourite films. It's great. But he does silly characters like the silly Irishman, but he's such a shit in it. <laughs> you know, and they're nearly all shits in that film. That's the joy of it. They all deserve to die. But he is the worst. He is venal womanizing coward but the moment in that film i think that i absolutely love which is creepy is that when there's an old chelsea pensioner comes on and he leaves the stage and he comes back as the chelsea pensioner Mm. and he is a a cop and it's terrifying because he's a clone of him and you think it's like invasion of the body snatchers he's going to eat this man on stage and take (laughs) his life sadly he doesn't do that but yeah it's my favorite, my other one is the famous anecdote that he's playing the American president in Strange Love, and his mother comes to visit, and he won't break character. Oh yes, and it's a power struggle with her, but he makes her talk to him. You know, he makes her have lunch with the American president. Yes, it's so, <laughs> I mean, I would put that in a movie. It's so horrible. That um, that scene in The Naked Truth where he's playing the Irishman going into that. Pub, oh, I love it. Trying to get, what's he trying to get? Is he trying to get a gun? He's trying to buy some gelignite. Oh, gelignite. Um, but that's an example, perfect example of the nervousness. Because you see that carrot, you could see him sweating under the sort of the prosthetic nose. And the, he's he sat there at this table with these two taciturn Irishmen. <laughs> and you can see, see his eyes darting back and forth. It's a great moment as well. It's got, he does the whole Irish blarney bit, even with the, the orchestra play underneath when he sings. Yeah. Then he says, and I think I'm quoting from, but why are we using the cursed tongue when we have the Gaelic? Yes. At which point the heavy punches him in the face. And then he does a perfect goon moment. He goes, like those. Yes. <laughs> and it's kind of out of character because you, you know it's a nod to goon yes. viewers. But yeah, it is. if I had one Sellers moment, I would choose that clip. Drop the hearts of Paddy, please. Oh, right away. Three and six, please. Right, 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 right. There. Go. Tis the shamrock in her hair that reminds me of Kalani. And the little people standing in a row. And God bless all here. The boys on the stools and the people of Kalani. My name's Lanigan. I'm from across the water. 
You'll be O'Toole and it's right glad that I am to meet you. I'm descended from the kings, you know, in the halls of Tara. It's like this. We're doing a job in London. Tis the Albert Hall at all, and we've run right out of the jelly. So if you could be letting me have a little of the jelly night, be dad, I'd be doing the job. Well, why are we talking in the cursed tongue when we have the Gaelic? Oh, clan fair whisking gith gogerich windrothwith, clan to silio, go, go, go. Ah! This is an Englishman, all right. Ah! My nose! Yeah, he never put the, he never, even right up to the end, I mean, he died, he was met, meant to meet up with Spike and Harry in London in, in uh, July 1980, and I think he flew into London, and that's where he died, I mean, his, his final heart attack. Wow. Um, and he'd never, ever put the goons behind them. Um, no, it, it, was, um, it was, I mean, it always fascinates me when you watch something like Sykes and he makes a guest appearance. I mean, he's not what you'd call a lovely, warm man, Peter Sellers, but yeah, he, again, it's like he was quite gracious about being a goon. Yes, yeah. You kind of think, I mean, you, you kind of think if, I don't know, you might disagree, if John Cleese, if his career had maybe, you know, if things had taken off after Fish Called Wanda, for example, he, he may have maybe sort of downplayed the Python element, you know, in terms of his success. I think he can't afford to do that these days, but um, I get the impression he might be the sort of guy that would sort of like, yeah, that was something I did 30, 40 years ago or whatever, um, you know? Yeah, I think it's hard to tell. I mean, nobody wants to be known for something they did 50 years ago or whatever, but, you know, mm. sometimes tough. Mm. He's always going to... Uh, I mean, the golden rule of life, I love John Cleese, but the golden rule is if you don't want to be remembered for doing a silly walk, don't do one. Have you heard the um, 25th anniversary recording of... Uh, I'm sorry, I'll read that again. No, I haven't. I wasn't aware of this. That was one of my favourite shows. So that they, they recorded that in 89 and they got everyone back. So it's David Hatch, Cleese, Tim, Bill, Graham, etc. And they send, I mean, Cleese is quite happy to send himself up mm. because, because there's a reference to him having a hair weave. Um, and he's, he's in, in the script, he's begging to do a funny walk. <laughs> he's saying well, I'm, I'm, I'm only going to agree to come and do this this uh i'm sorry i'll read that again reunion if i can do a funny walk <laughs> oh i'll have to play this when we've stopped speaking yeah i mean i love one of the things that i always considered as a comedy snob there's sort of two things in life that have guided me one is when i was talking to chris morris when i was working with jane busman and i remember chris talking about another writer and saying really dismissively he's still at the aardvark stage of comedy, meaning that moment when you still think aardvark is a funny word. Mm. And the other is the story about John Cleese getting a laugh with puns during, I'm sorry, I'll read that again, and just shouting over the laughter, easy, easy. <laughs> that idea that, you know, comedy isn't fun. Yeah. That, yeah. you know, there yeah. are things you shouldn't laugh at. It's kind of stayed with me. Yeah. It's a wrong thing, but I, I love that. I don't think Spike Milligan would have agreed with that. I don't know. No. Oh, well, listen, David, listen, thank you so much for, for joining me today to talk about the goons. and Thank and, you, Tyler. And, I've loved it. And everything else. Um, so what's in the pipeline? What's coming up for you? Well, I'm writing um, on, in a small capacity, on Avenue 5, the Armando Iannucci thing for HBO with Hugh Laurie, yep. which is brilliant. Mm -hmm. um, Got a radio series coming up with French and Saunders. You ask me now when I've actually got loads of stuff and I look like a twat. <laughs> and I've got, I wrote a film called Book of Love, which has got Sam Claflin and Victoria Etchigi and is coming out next year. Oh, wow. So lockdown's been productive for me because I haven't been able to leave the room from which I am speaking to you. Mm. So a lot going on. Excellent. Well, 
Um, so yeah, thanks again and uh, maybe talk again soon. Thank you. And if you want me back on, I've still got nothing else to do, so I'd be delighted to talk okay. further. I'll get you back sometime to talk about a Sellers film, maybe. Well, that would be great. Thanks again to David. Uh, thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please go on to iTunes and give us a nice five-star rating and a nice review would be useful as well. I'll be back next time. Take care. See you soon. Bye.